Welcome to the GGB podcast for August 2019, volume 57, number 8. My name is David Fazakri, DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cape, Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month focuses on the diagnosis of preeclampsia. James, what do we cover in this one? So I think for many of us, preeclampsia has not changed at all in the last, well, for me, three decades. It's often a very elusive diagnosis. It's difficult to pick up. We spend a lot of time in the second half of pregnancy measuring blood pressures, testing urine and and assessing fetal growth in an effort to try and pick up those women who might have preeclampsia. And in this editorial, Joanne Gerling talks about a study published in The Lancet called the Parrot Study, which looked at placental growth factor as a measure of maternal risk of developing preeclampsia. And the paper itself assessed the impact of using this test. What did it show in terms of speed of diagnosis and maternal outcomes? So in the study, a 1,000 women were involved, over 11 maternity units. And what they found was that where clinicians knew the uh, placental growth factor, there was an earlier diagnosis of preeclampsia and less maternal complications. And the absolute numbers? So we're only talking about a 1% absolute reduction in maternal complications, but actually that was a 30% reduction in in risk as as a relative risk reduction. There was no change in outcomes from the delivery or infant-based outcomes, but uh, that was a significant reduction in maternal complications. And I guess presumably the challenge now is to get this translated from interesting findings of a study into routine practice. It is. And and the good news is that the NHS has picked up this as one of seven sort of novel ideas that they want to put through their accelerated access collaboration. So this should be coming to a maternity unit uh, soon. So it'd be interesting to see how quickly it it, it gets embedded. Okay, thank you very much. And our main article this month considers how we should be communicating evidence with patients. So what are the main points we cover in this one? So this is, I think, we are all struggling as clinicians now with how we explain to patients that they are entirely well, but they're at risk of a problem, and how do we make sure that we have adequately consented them to start taking everything from a statin to hypertension to their tablets for their diabetes. And in this really useful article, We start off by talking about the Montgomery judgment, which really was a major landmark case that talked all about the need to have informed consent and that it was a duties doc to ensure that he or she puts the patient in the position where they can make an informed decision. And we talk about how we might be able to achieve that. And the sort of headings that we cover? Yeah, so the author has 10 elements that uh, she talks about, everything from trying to make sure you only give the information relevant to the decision. Interesting enough, she talks about what she calls teach back, but which I think many GPs were recognised from their VTS days as testing a patient's understanding. But she also talks about using numbers when we use risks, how you might put those in a way that they can be understood by patients. But I think perhaps the single most important message that comes out of all this is is there is no single way to do this and also perhaps this is important with Brexit being around decisions are rarely made on a purely factual basis we must take into account patients values and their own experiences okay thank you very much and this month we've got a case report 
this one involved a patient who was taking opioids and gabapentin for chronic neck and back pain. So what happened in this case? I thought this this case report was so relevant to so many of us. This is a patient that many of us will recognise. As you say, he had chronic neck and back pain. He was obese. He has type 2 diabetes and was on metformin and insulin. He was hypertensive and he was on opioids and gabapentin. He also had sleep apnea. And the story behind this one is that he became increasingly unrousable and unconscious and was admitted to hospital with respiratory failure and was actually had to be admitted to ITU. And he then became encephalopathic and it was only when they reintroduced his gabapentin that he actually recovered. And I think the message for us here was to remember that we, sh- we mustn't ever stop gabapentin or pregabalin suddenly and that we should always reduce it over at least one week to prevent this sort of complication. And it was a sudden stopping of it that had precipitated his problem. Yes, that's what that's what they felt from this case report. So I think in the same way as that we are aware of the serotonin syndrome issue with patients on, on a lot of these medications, likewise when we come to stop them we must be aware of the withdrawal effects as well. I think it is covered briefly in the SPC. For... It is, it does say you should only ever reduce it over a period of a week. Okay, thank you very much. And to read these or any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.